The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me today is Assistant Professor Debbie Delaney from the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology. She is the brains behind Dare to Be Honey, available at the UD Creamery on a seasonal basis. She's an expert in all kinds of bees, and she leads UD's apiculture program with a primary goal of providing hands-on experience centered on the amazing honeybee and other native pollinators. Welcome to Campus Voices, Debbie. Well, thank you very much, Richard. How did you first get interested in insects? Oh, well... That's kind of a funny story, really. I started drawing them, actually. Um, I went to art school for portraits of human beings and was thoroughly bored by drawing humans and switched to insects because they're much better subjects. They don't move. They don't whine and complain. And I just became so fascinated by them, especially once I saw one under a microscope. It just opened a whole new world, and I dropped out of art school. Yes, I am an art school dropout. And... um, went to school to study insects. And actually during the general entomology class that I took as an undergrad, I wasn't sure what type of field I was interested in. I just knew I really liked insects. And uh, there was a day where we went out to the bee yard and I was helping to um, watch and manage the colonies and everybody else was pretty afraid. And I was just fascinated. I went right up, had no qualms about it. And right then and there I got a hive and I knew that that was my destiny. And my name, actually, Deborah, in Hebrew, is Honeybee. Wow. So it's all faded from above. Yes, it was faded from above. I thought it might have been because you developed an early addiction to honey and then felt the need to... That was later. (laughs) (laughs) That was later. (laughs) Well, a lot of people may not realize it, but honeybees aren't native to North America, are they? No, um, they aren't. And, of course, with every fact, there is controversy um, because they did find a fossilized bee in Nevada, which is known as Apis nearctica, but it's not like our present-day honeybees. Um, So in terms of our present-day honeybee, there is no native honeybee to North America. Where'd they come from? We brought them here, um, just like we bring a lot of things, or we have brought a lot of things here. Um, So our first record of honeybees in North America dates back to the early 1600s, and there is some ideas that they actually came earlier than that um, in the 1500s um, with the missionaries as they were coming up through New Spain, Um, and there is some kind of evidence of that looking at some of the molecular genetics of bees from Arizona, but we know from ship's logs that they did, in fact, in the cargo hold, um, contain honeybees as early as 1621 and that they were brought over here then. So they're brought over as something, an agricultural product, like the the rabbits and the apples and... Yep, Um, you know, similar things in the ship's holds would be peacocks, um, rabbits, uh, fruit trees, and things of that nature. Um, But, you know, at that time they didn't 
really bring them over for agricultural purposes like we think of them here now. We know they're huge ecosystem services they provide, like pollination, um, but we didn't re- they didn't really understand the connection um, between honeybees and, and pollination in the 1600s. At least it wasn't stated so. So when did people start using bees as pollinators? When did they figure that out? I mean, before that, they were just, this is what you use to make mead. Uh, right. <laughs> well, and also they used it. They used honeybees as a, a sole provider, as a sweetener, you know, for the honey, as well as beeswax for candles and a whole host of other important products. Um, so they were really part of everyday living. Around the 1730s, 1750s, they understood that honeybees actually and, and insects were responsible for transferring pollen um, from plant to plant and um, allowing fertilization and then therefore pollination to occur. So it is relatively recent. I mean, did did they start putting honeybee hives up in different places in the 18th century once they figured that out? It's funny because in the 18th century, you saw a big boom in the beekeeping industry. Um, and I don't know if it's directly correlated with that, but people were actively seeking out subspecies of honeybees to be imported into the U.S. that could overwinter better, that were better honey producers, that had nice temperament. So really in the mid-1800s, you saw this boom or this expansion of a beekeeping industry. I think that's pretty funny, I mean, talking about bees and their temperament. I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah, used to, you know, people talking about that if they're breeding dogs or something, we're breeding this for temperament. But but you need to do that with bees as well. Absolutely. Um, I've worked some hives that um, soon after I was done working them, I was like, okay, you have about an hour till I cause your death um, just because they stung me so much. You don't want to work bees like that. They're dangerous. Um, but um, most bees are actually very gentle and docile. If you were to come to UD Apiary in the spring, they're like little teddy bears. You can even pet them. They're so nice. Pet a bee. Yes. But they've got that stinger on that rear. Yes, but they aren't interested in using it. Um, if they use it, they will die. So, I mean, there has to be a, a reason for them to be alarmed. And generally in the spring, there's a lot of nectar and pollen available, so they're busy. They don't really notice you. We're talking with Debbie Delaney from the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology, and she is the university's queen bee in charge of all things down at the university's Royalty. apiary. We've talk, been talking about honeybees as as they're not native to to the United States or to North America. What kinds of bees are native? Um, there's a, actually a lot of native bees here. Even in this wonderful small wonder of Delaware, um, we have about 200 and probably much more than that known species. Helictids, which are sweat bees, you might see them. They're very green, metallic. They look like little jewels. They're smaller. Um, and these are solitary bees. Um, they can aggregate um, together and share a good resource, like a good of soil that looks extra special, um, or, or food resources. We also have bumblebees, which are native to North America. Um, we have um, uh, andrenid bees, uh, which are mining bees, um, which are very small. Um, they have all different colors, actually. They're extremely variable. What and, do they mine? Um, well, they dig in the soil. So they have their nest typically in the soil. Um, they make these underground tunnels. And, you know, a single mom bee, she's a hardworking single mom, she'll actually go and um, dig out this tunnel after she's made it, of course. And then she will provide her young with pollen balls on which for them to develop. So these bees feed on pollen balls. So I guess not all bees make honey like 
like little kids think all bees no. live in hives with honey. No, not all bees make honey. Um, honeybees are different than a lot of our other native bees. Honeybees are perennial. They live from year after year, and so they store honey um, because they need to feed on it during the colder colder months. Um, so they need to be able to store honey in their colony. Um, whereas these solitary bees, they're only active for a small amount of time. They will actually feed on nectar. They'll bring back pollen, but they do not need to store it because they're annual. They will die off and um, leave the next generation that will develop the following spring. Now let's go ahead and talk about bumblebees because one of the things that I didn't know, bumblebees are aces at pollinating certain kinds of crops. Absolutely. Yes, they are. Do you want me to talk more about that? <laughs> yes, bumblebees are fabulous at pollinating um, things that we really like, like tomatoes. Um, also, cranberries, um, they're important in uh, watermelon systems as well, which is some of the work that we've been doing here at UD. Um, but they are extremely important in greenhouse tomatoes. And really, a study just came out that says that if you don't have bumblebee pollination, that for your greenhouse tomatoes that you're not going to be able to compete in the market. Um, so Why is that? Just because bumblebees are so excellent and proficient at being able to dislodge pollen from those flowers and being able to transfer it from one flower to another. Why are they so much better at it than honeybees? They have a different pollination behavior. Um, they will actually pierce and, and bite into the flower uh, with their mandibles and vibrate their thoracic wing muscles and this is called sonication, um, and it dislodges a lot of different, more stickier pollens and allows them just to be coated and release that pollen more efficiently than, say, honeybees or other pollinators. So they have this unique buzz pollination type of behavior. Buzz pollination. So they bite into it, and then they buzz, uh -huh. and that generates more pollen flying all over the place. Exactly. And some people will actually even simulate this buzz pollination behavior. You can see it on YouTube. They'll actually use Sonicare toothbrushes, and they will go to tomato flowers and sonicate the tomato flowers. And uh, I know it's very interesting. People will buy hives of bumblebees to plop down in the middle of their watermelon fields. Yes, they will. So and they really are an important part of the whole economy, not just, you know, we think of them as making as making honey, as bees making honey, but these are mm -hmm. bees that are put out there strictly for pollination purposes. Absolutely. And, and with bumblebees, you're not going to be harvesting honey from bumblebees, um, as well as a lot of the other native bees, uh, solitary bees, they're not solitary. They live in, in groups and they're social, but um, they don't, they're annual. They don't store honey. They just store a little bit of honey enough for the development of their worker force and their reproductives for later in the season. At the Apiculture Program's webpage, you all say that one of your goals is to share the unique life history, biology, and ecology of the honeybee. Yes. Uh, and when we spoke a few weeks ago, I think my jaw just dropped as you were describing for me the life of a worker bee in, in, yeah. a, in a honeybee hive. It's almost like they go through a whole career development. So once they emerge as an adult, they go through this thing called age-based polyethism. We have to put a fancy name to it. But essentially what that means is that they change tasks or jobs as they get older as an adult bee. Um, the first three weeks of their lives are spent inside the colony and um, actually, that can even be divided further into specific age-dependent tasks that they do. 
one of the first tasks they do is to actually become nurse bees, and they'll actually feed um, developing larvae. And so what's really interesting is that different physiological changes will occur that are associated with these tasks. So as a nurse bee, during that specific early time in their adult development, um, their mandibular glands and hypopharyngeal glands, which are located in their head, will become physiologically activated. And these are the two glands that are used to produce bee milk or brood food for the developing larvae. Um, later on um, in their adult life, they'll actually become wax builders. And this is another really interesting event where their wax glands, which are located on their abdomen, will become activated, and they'll actually start producing wax uh, for building this awesome structure in which they live in. And a lot of this is driven um, from hormones and pheromones from the other um, colony members. So it's very complex. And then they go on, some of them, to be guard bees to hang yes. out and protect the hive? Yes. That's one of the last um, jobs of a house bee. Um, and then the last three weeks of their life, adult life, is spent as foraging bees or field bees. And they will go out in the field and go and collect you know, water, propolis, which is a sticky substance used to kind of insulate their hive. Um, some people in new research is showing this is really bee medicine because this propolis has antimicrobial and antiviral properties. And um, by sealing their hive with it, by coating different parts of their hive with it, they're actually bringing medicine into their own hive. So they go out looking for pollen. There's bee medicine. What else? Nectar. Um, nectar is their carbs. That's, you know, which is my weakness. <laughs> but nectar is their carbohydrate source. And so they'll be bringing that in specifically um, to turn into honey. Um, and also pollen is their protein source. So that they'll bring in and they'll store um, to then feed the baby bees. Do they also bring back water or anything yes, else? Yes, they bring back water as well. So the main thing they forage for are water, propolis, nectar, and pollen. Those are the major requirements for a honeybee colony. We talk about dances that bees do. Is, mm -hmm. this, is this the forager bees that are communicating with each other? Absolutely. Um, and it's not just the foragers that are communicating with each other, you know, doing these elaborate dances, giving directions to different resources out in the field. There's actually communication going on between um, the foragers and the house bees. Um, we call them receiving bees. And these receiving bees are the ones who are in there ready to take the load from that field bee. Um, so they will actually regurgitate the nectar into the field bee, or, or excuse me, the receiving bee, for it to store the nectar inside the hive and start the ripening process into honey. And also they'll um, take the pollen and store it. If I were a honey bee, I'd be pretty ticked off that us humans come and take our honey. <laughs> How, how does how do the, how do these bees how do you go from these thing these bees that are designed to protect their honey and protect their young um, how do you how do you go about making them into a food source if you will or something well, where you can harvest the wax? Well, we've done a pretty good job about it, um, and it's it's all in selection. We've selected for bees to collect lots and lots of honey, um, be good honey producers, and so much so that some of them collect more than they could possibly eat during the winter which is the key for us to being able to sustainably harvest the honey and keep those bees alive. So a good beekeeper will leave enough honey, more than a little bit more than enough honey for that colony to overwinter with and just take enough for themselves to satiate their honey requirements as a human being, which mine are very high. I love honey. 
Okay, so we're talking about genetic selection of bees to help develop ones that are great producers. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that's something that you and your four graduate students are working on, and there are other kinds of things you guys are working on as well. Yes, we work on a bunch of different things. Um, diversity is a spice of life. And so I have one student who's looking at uh, the varroa mite, and the varroa mite is probably one of the main pests of honeybee populations. It was brought in in the late 1980s, um, not intentionally. And um, it's wreaked havoc on the beekeeping industry. Uh, Depending on who you talk to, most people would probably agree that it's the number one pest, Um, not only because it directly feeds on honeybees, but it also inoculates bees with viruses. And so my student is looking at natural non-chemical ways for decreasing mite populations and hopefully um, thereby virus populations as well um, in honeybee colonies. And so this type of research is targeted to small-scale um, hobbyist beekeepers. So that's work that's being conducted right on the UD farm. What else are some of your other students working on? I think you were talking about some of the uses of bees as pollinators in urban areas. Um, w- well, yes. We are doing some work looking at really surveying what bees, native bees, are present in urban fragments. And that's part of a larger departmental project, the FRAME project. Um, There's a lot of different uh, researchers that are involved in the entomology and wildlife ecology department looking at the FRAME from studying birds in these urban fragments to reptiles to invasive plants. It's a very, very diverse By looking at the ecology in little urban forest Yes, spots. and the surrounding land use variables that affect these different groups. And the group, of course, we're lo- I'm studying is the pollinator group. Um, and so I have a student who is surveying and doing collections in these urban fragments to see which native pollinators are there and um, how these different land use variables are affecting abundance and diversity. And we're also looking at pesticide exposure to the pollinators in these different fragments. We're talking today on Campus Voices with Debbie Delaney the university's queen bee from the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology. I'm talking with you about the bees is fascinating. It makes me want to run out and buy five different jars of honey and see if I can taste the difference. Oh, I think you should go out and buy a hive. You think I should go out and buy a hive? Mm-hmm. Or I can give you one. We have our very own WVUD hive in the basement yes. of the Perkins Student you can, Center. No, on the roof. <laughs> on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> What kinds of extension projects are you involved in? Oh. Because that's an important part of, of, of your college, you know, reaching out to the community. Mm-hmm. Well, all of, our pro- all of my projects have an extension component, all of the research projects. So really the idea of extension in my mind is doing research and then extending um, that research information to the public. And so it's really important to me to have an extension component. Um, so for the Varroa Project... We have a very large extension component developing this non-chemical IPM program for uh, hobbyist beekeepers. And so there's a lot of literature that's going to be developed from this project directly to be disseminated to these beekeeping groups. One very extension-driven project is this um, managing risks in honey production. And this is a collaborative project um, within the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources with the APEC department, specifically Dr. Kent Messer and his graduate students. And we're looking at different characteristics and attributes of honey and figuring out which attributes of honey 
um, are important in increasing the willingness to pay of consumers. And so we've done a lot of research bringing in general public to actually ask them questions, give them options of which type of jar they like, give them information if, if it's local, if it's international, if it's nationally produced, and how that determines or drives the price up or drives their price down of what they're willing to pay for that particular jar of honey. And hopefully our goal is to provide honey producers with marketing tools that will allow them to increase the price for their honey product. Tell us about Dare to Be Honey. You were telling me that it, that different times a year it comes out differently. Oh, absolutely. Early in the season, it's like I call it liquid gold. It is delicious. It's a very gold-like color. And this is due to the fact that the bees are foraging heavily on the black locust that's surrounding the apiary. Um, some years are better than others. We'll get more of this delicious liquid gold. <laughs> Last year was a pretty good year. I don't know what it's going to be like this year. Um, but that is our early harvest. We have It's very light in color. It's very sweet, very floral. Um, later in the season, it, it starts to get a little bit darker, and it has a richer flavor, but it's also very, very good. Um, and this is probably a combination of tulip poplar as well as other um, woody plants in, on the farm. When does Dare to Be Honey typically found? At the Uderi Creamery? Well, for customers who are listening right now to run down and purchase. Yes, we usually sell out pretty quick. So I would recommend that you get there. Our first harvest will probably be sometime in July. So we'll probably have it on the shelves in August unless things go differently and we get an early harvest. Um, But we'll announce it on the college website if if that is the case. Um, Otherwise, usually it's from August to about November is when you can find Dare to Be Honey in the creamery. I know that I've been disappointed. You know, I was thinking, oh, wow, Dare to Be Honey, a wonderful Christmas present for my family. And I'll go buy a case of it. It's all sold out almost immediately. I know. It's it's really good. And a lot of people are really interested in it because it's locally produced um, and they think it helps with their allergies. And There's all different reasons people really like Dare to Be Honey. I think it's because of the taste. Now, one of the things I know that you and some of your graduate students are working on are looking for tools to help identify bees that have been Africanized. Yes. And why did people bring bees from Africa to the Americas? Well, in the 1950s, they brought bees to Brazil, African subspecies, because African bees have a lot of traits that are very good. And so the idea was to make a hybrid between a European and African bee and make this super bee that was extra good at collecting resources because African bees are very good at finding and collecting and efficiently producing honey. And unfortunately, there's a lot of controversy to what actually happened, but these African bees, before selection was finally completed, got out and spread across the landscape at an alarmingly fast pace. And they also had a lot of characteristics that are not necessarily beneficial for being around human beings, one being the defensive behavior. Meaning they sting a lot. Yes, and a lot of people say they're aggressive, and I'd like to say they're very defensive. If you think about the ecology in which these subspecies naturally occur, it's very harsh environment, 
resources are far and few between. So protecting their resources is extremely important to their survival. They also will swarm more often um, because conditions will, a dearth may occur, conditions will worsen, so they then have to move to a place where there might be resources. Um, so there's a lot of these traits that are not considered beneficial to the normal beekeeping stock and strains that we have here in the U.S., but really it's their moving, um, their movement across the landscape is somewhat out of our control um, because these are naturally occurring, they're naturally mating with our European subspecies and stocks that we have here. You've got one one website I know that, that you're affiliated with is savethehives.com. Yes. Is that... Is that looking for aggressive hives? Is it looking for no. sick hives? Is it? That website was generated by a man named Ronnie Bouchon uh, from Raleigh area, North Carolina. And he, um, it was really designed to identify the location of unmanaged honeybee hives. That is it. And when he found out the work that I was doing looking at unmanaged honeybee colonies, he we linked up, and I he shared with me the Google Docs so that I could actually find the location of these unmanaged colonies throughout the U.S. And even people in other parts of the world have put coordinates on for unmanaged beehives. Um, so that's really a different project that, well, it started out as a different project, looking at unmanaged feral-type bees, looking possibly for survival or survivor stock, bees that actually have survived in the face of all these pests and pathogens, this CCD and different things, survived naturally without human intervention. And that's an ongoing project in my lab, um, looking at the population genetics of unmanaged bees. Now, the Africanized Bee Project developed off of that because we had this large sampling of this feral or unmanaged population um, uh, from Maine to Florida, which Florida is known to have Africanized bees, we thought it would be interesting to use molecular tools to look at the integration of Africanized genetics up along the coast. Sounds like then the Africanized bees, it's like all these other things where people have imported something from its natural environment into our environment, and it's not, not quite as bad as kudzu taking over the entire <laughs> south, but, but it's that kind of thing, isn't it, where, where you know we're still trying to learn how to manage this Absolutely. This beast, or in this case, these bees that, that, that we've released. Absolutely. But they can be managed because they, they are good honey producers. Yes, if, and a good example of this is if you look in areas where Africanized bees are um, now. So South America, Central America, most of the bees there are Africanized at some degree or level. And they have changed their beekeeping management and practices to deal with the different traits and behaviors of these bees, this more aggressive nature, this swarming and absconding behavior. So it's a paradigm shift on how to change your management approach. Um, they use bigger smokers. <laughs> they use, you know, definitely wear protective equipment, whereas maybe before they were wearing a veil and shorts. Now they wear a full suit. You know, so there's different changes that had to occur. But now they are more viable as honey producers than they've ever been in history. So there are once you do make these adjustments and changes, there are boons that can come from that. We've been talking with Debbie Delaney from the University of Delaware's Entomology and Wildlife Ecology Department, and you can tell she is an expert on all things bee. And 
If you go to our website, www.udall.edu slash campusvoices, you'll find links to all sorts of different things that Debbie's involved with, with Extension, with Dare to Be Honey, Save the Hives, and many other things. Debbie, you got any kind of snappy clothes for us about the importance of bees in our daily lives? Or Without bees, you wouldn't be able to enjoy pretty much. You'd have a very bland, bland breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You might need to go get some Metamucil. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Debbie. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website, Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. Bringing you the vitality of college radio and the diversity of community radio. 91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark, Delaware. <laughs>